You're listening to sermon audio from Gospelite Baptist Church. For more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit gospelite.org. I want to introduce a, a new sermon series. As you can see on the screen, I've entitled it Victory Verses. I want to explain that to you. If you remember when we started the year, or maybe at the end of last year, I talked about a challenge the Holy Spirit had been dealing with me about regarding the new year and my personal Bible reading. And the direction that I had from God was to to meditate and memorize Scripture this year. And that's my focus. I, I love reading through the Bible. I love reading the, you know, the three, four, five chapters a day. And I, I think that's good and important. And I've done that like you have maybe multiple times. But there are there, there's an emphasis in my heart right now to, to memorize Scripture, to meditate, memorize, focus on smaller passages or maybe single verses in order to uh, to speak out against the enemy uh, and be able to hide God's word in my heart that I might not sin against against him. And, and so it's really been an encouragement to me. I've already started this process. So I felt as if the first sermon series of the year could could maybe kind of complement that that particular resolution that I've made in my heart. So I decided uh, to, to focus on some verses in Scripture that seemed to have uh, a, a more of an impact in our lives. Let me give you a, an illustration. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is, is given by God, it's inspired by God, and it is what? It is profitable, right? All Scripture is profitable, all of it. But would you not agree with me that some Scripture is more profitable. I mean, there are some verses, some passages that when you read them, it is like God turns a light on at times. A measure of of conviction or or enlightenment or or the word ministers to you through particular verses in in such a way that maybe he didn't in in other passages. So I have focused on these verses for me, and I'm calling them victory verses Scripture that changes everything. When you get a hold of of these particular verses and the light goes on in your heart, you begin to see things in a completely different way. And so we're going to talk about one this morning and for the next several weeks. And we're going to commit these to memory together. And we're going to write them out. And, 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 and I know that's got to be an individual thing. Don't worry, we're not taking tests at the end of the sermon series. And There'll be no GPAs given here. Uh, It's all good. But I do believe that this is a challenge worth accepting by every child of God, memorizing these passages, these victory verses. The first one, I'm not a victim. The song was sung a moment ago. And this is the purpose this morning of understanding what is a victim. Victims are people who have been what? Abused. And if ever someone had the right to be a card-carrying member of Victims for Life. It would have been the man that we are going to study this morning for a few moments. And his name is Joseph. When you see what this guy went through, when you see it, and and we're going to have to see it kind of on a fast track this morning, and there's a lot of real estate here in the Bible. Chapter 37 through chapter 50 it says so much about Joseph, and there's no way we could cover all that in one sermon, a sermon series maybe, and, and I've done that before actually about the life of Joseph. But this morning, just a quick picture of his life, but when you see all that he went through, you'll understand that he definitely could have been 
a card-carrying member of Victims for Life, but he made a different decision. So let's lay out, first of all, in an acrostic, the word abuse. What does abuse look like? Well, if we take the life of Joseph, pay attention, if we take the life of Joseph, we can get an idea of what abuse might look like. And it might even look that way for some of us, if not all of us, this morning in some area of our past. All right? So write this down. Ready? Number one. I want you to write down these two words, accelerating for the letter A, accelerating hatred, unexplaining, unexplainable, accelerating hatred. The life of Joseph begins in chapter 37 of Genesis, beginning in verse 1. Are you there? Look at it. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. Verse 3 or verse 2, Joseph being 17 years old. 17 is when it all started. He was pasturing the flock with his brothers. Verse 3. Now Israel loved Joseph more. He loved Joseph more. Israel, new name for Jacob. He loved Joseph, his son, more than any other of his sons. I want to just take note of a little dysfunction here in the family. A lot of damage can be done when favoritism is shown in the family. And you know, when you see, when you look back at at the history of how Jacob was raised, his parents were Isaac and Rebekah. They had two boys, Jacob and Esau. It looks as if Jacob is falling into the same trap as his parents practiced when they showed favoritism to him. And here he begins to show favoritism to one of his sons. Make a note of verse 4. It says, But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more, showed favoritism to him more than all his brothers, look what happened. They hated him. They hated him. But not, not only did they hate him, it went farther than that. It went deeper than that. They could not even speak peacefully to him. But it gets worse. Look at verse number five. Now Joseph had a dream. And he told this dream to his brothers. And guess what they did? They hated him even more. And I know there's all kinds of things we could say about the dream and how Joseph told the brothers the dream and what the interpretation of the dream was and how it was interpreted. But let me just go on record as saying this. Nothing justifies hatred. Are you with me? Nothing. Listen, nothing you do or fail to do could ever justify the action that hatred takes for the abuse that hatred creates. I can understand what's happening. I get it. It's not good. I get it. But nothing that Joseph did justified this level of accelerating hatred. And A in the word abuse this morning is for accelerating hatred. Joseph was experiencing that. Look at the second letter, B. And let's find it in Scripture here in this story. Write this down. He was berated as worthless. Jacob comes up with a plan here, his dad does, to have his son Joseph, his favorite son, right? Who he's kind of protecting. I mean, listen, the other brothers are out in the field, right? They're out working and putting their lives on the line and, and, and all that. And, and so Jacob's at home and he's playing games, uh, video games, you know, and he's having a nice little fun time. And his dad says, go make some lunch, maybe make some peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and let's bring it out to the boys in the field. 
So Jacob comes up with this little plan to bring lunch to his brothers, for Joseph to bring lunch to his brothers. And while he's approaching these abusive brothers, can you and I lend an ear to what they are saying? Look at verse 18. They saw him, the brothers did, from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. Boy, this accelerating hatred is getting out of control. But a brother speaks up and says, after they say, now come let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Uh, He speaks up here and says, uh, Reuben speaks up and says, verse number 21, but when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands saying, let us not take his life. Maybe guys, that's a little too far. Let's not shed his, uh, let's not shed blood here. So when Joseph came to his brothers, verse 23, they stripped him of his robe, his robe of many colors that he wore. They took him and threw him into the pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. And look what they did. They still sat down and ate the lunch that Joseph brought them. These guys are animals. Can you imagine what that must have been like? Now they're having a conversation. Notice in verse 26, Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. Then look at it. Verse, the last part of this little passage in verse 28. And they sold him to the Ishmaelites. They sold him for 20 shekels of silver. He was berated as worthless. Can you imagine the conversation? He must have heard in that pit as he listened to his brother's Negotiate a deal to sell him. Can you imagine the bartering back and forth? I'll give you this. Well, you know, I think he's worth a little bit more. Well, okay, we'll take that for him. Wow. Berated is worthless. Look at the letter U. And I want you to write this word down for that as we work through this word abuse and all that it means. Unjust condemnation. And Joseph experienced some unjust condemnation beginning in chapter 39 in verse number 1. Would you take a look at it with me? And Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph. I mean, we see again that he was sold again for the second time in that passage. But the Lord was with Joseph. Verse 5. From the time that he had made him overseer in his house... And over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And after, verse 7, and after a time, unjust condemnation, stay with me. And after a time, his master's wife, Joseph's master's wife, she cast her eyes on Joseph. You may know her as Potiphar's wife. And she says, lie with me. But Joseph refused. And Joseph said to his master's wife, verse, look at verse uh, here in 8. Behold, because of me, my master is no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not, uh, he is not greater in, in this house than I am. Nor has he kept back anything from me except for you. Because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And she spoke to Joseph day after day. But he would not listen to her. To lie beside her. Or to be with her. Now this is about to go very bad for Joseph. And I want to say this about that. Because, you know, sometimes in life, we find ourselves being very obedient to God and things aren't going good. We're making right decisions. Maybe even in a situation like this, we are, we are not obeying Scripture and, and not 
committing the sin or are yielding to the temptation. Beware of the temptation to rebel when your acts of surrender are not quickly being rewarded by God. Don't quit. Don't stop doing the right thing. Don't have an attitude that says, you know, forget this. I might as well just sleep with it. What's the, I mean, who cares? I'm, it's not working anyway. It's not going for me. It's not going good for me. I'm, I'm doing the right thing. I'm going to church. I'm doing all these things. But look at this. It's still happening. Your obedience will be rewarded. Verse 11. But one day when he went to the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she catches him by the garment and she says, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. Verse 19, as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled and Joseph's master took him and put him into prison. Unjust condemnation. Did Joseph uh, deserve to be sold to that slave? Yes or no? No. Did Joseph deserve to be in prison? No. Accelerating hatred. Berated as worthless. Unjust condemnation. The letter S. We, see, we, we heard that word in some of our worship this morning and it was addressed. Shame. And publication of shame. In just a moment, we're going to fast forward to Genesis chapter 40. But first, I want to draw your attention to the sufferings of Christ in Scripture. Today, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. And as you can see, these elements are before us. And if you're a child of God, we invite you to receive these elements with us and celebrate what God did for us when he died for us. And praise God, rose again. And death has no grip on us because of that. Amen? In just a moment, we'll, we'll recognize that. But when God suffered and shed his blood and died for our sins, in Scripture, very little, if anything, is said about the pain. Very little, if any. The, the fact of the matter is, there's not much said about the physical pain of Jesus. But there is something said about the shame. That was the hard part for him. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse number 2, Scripture says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, all it says is he endured the cross, despising the shame. <laughs> Spit in his face. Cursed him. Laughed at him. The mockery. This is what True abuse is from the enemy. Shame. In Genesis chapter 40 and verse 14, again, with little time to develop everything behind the story. Joseph now is in prison and he interprets another dream. The great dreamer interprets another dream. And after he does interpret the dream and interprets it correctly, he looks at the chief butler and baker and says in verse 14, Only remember me, guys. Don't forget me. When it's well with you, please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of his house. Well, they didn't remember him. He remained in prison. But you see, abuse is not a one-time thing. And I want to address this with the letter E. 
accelerating hatred, berated as worthless, unjust condemnation. There's shame and publication of shame. But the letter E, may it stand this morning for enduring condition. Because usually abuse is not something that happens to us one time. It's something that is, is, it's, it's enduring. It may be a one-time event that lasts for a long time. Or we continually recall what happened to us. Or it could be something that goes on for a longer period of time. Let's see that in the life of Joseph. Do you remember back when we read Genesis chapter 37 and verse 2 and we discovered when all this started? How old was Joseph? Does anybody remember? 17. He was 17 years old when all of this started. But if you fast forward to Genesis chapter 41 and verse 46, you're going to see Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. This now has been going on in Joseph's life for 13 years. And probably, to be honest, more like 25 years by the time his brothers finally came before him during the famine towards the end of the beginning in chapter 45 and, and following. 25 years. Things did get better for Joseph. Pharaoh had a dream and he was called up for prison to interpret that dream. He interpreted the dream correctly. It had something to do with the famine that would be in the land. And that's kind of what brought his brothers to him as the dad sent the brothers to to Egypt to get food so they could stay alive. And all of that story plays into the final chapter of this story. But I want to stop here and say this as we transition now, that the hardest hurts to overcome are home hurts. You see, what hurt most about this was it was so close to home. It was brothers. You know, I can say this without any stutter, stammer, or hesitation. Not a day in my life goes by I'm not helping somebody get over a home hurt. Not a week in my life, I'm sorry, not a week. I meant to say week. I mean, yesterday I spent two hours. And it was a glorious two hours because God worked. God worked unbelievably. It was somebody outside of our church family, but I was introduced to this situation by someone in our church family. And this has been going on in this particular situation for 30 years in this story that I dealt with yesterday. And everybody in the story was a husband, a wife, a son, or a daughter. Because the hardest hurts to overcome are from the people closest to us. Someone very close to us. You know, Scripture prophesies this in the words of Jesus. The Old Testament says in Psalm chapter 41 and verse 9, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, he ate my bread, but he lifted his heel against me. So let's discuss this word wisdom. If you were to look the word victim, excuse me, victim. If you were to look the word victim up in the dictionary, you might read this. A person harmed or injured as the result of a crime or accident. That's a good definition. But for your worship guide and for the message and for the life of Joseph, I want to define victim as this. A person who has come to feel helpless and passive in the face of misfortune or ill treatment. Because I think all of us can relate to that. Do you? Can't all of us relate to that in some way or another? In some way or another, there's not one person sitting here in this building who cannot say, yes, in that way, I guess I've been a victim. I, I've 
I've at times felt helpless about a situation. I've even felt passive about it. Like, you know what? Who cares? And whatever. And my life will never be the same again. I've been mistreated. I've been through unfortunate situations in my life. We've all been there. We've all had the attitude at times where we just say, you know what? I can't change this. I can't help this. I'm stuck in this. Let me give you three characteristics of a victim mentality. The definitions of each of these is already in your notes, but write this down. Number one, it's when you focus on yourself. When all you can do is focus on yourself in the situation and you have this attitude that says, you know, everything is going to be determined by how it affects me. That's why a lot of people do leave church. That's why a lot of people walk away from America. That's how, why a lot of people give up and, 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 and turn their backs on life. It just, it's all about how it affects them. Number two, ongoing pain. It happened a long time ago, yes, but it still hurts. And because it happened a long time ago, it still hurts. Now I'm bitter and I'm stuck in the past and I'm paralyzed, number three. I'm just paralyzed. I'm not trying to go forward. I just give up. I'm not even going to try anymore. This is the victim mentality. This is what happens to us when, when this grips us and we embrace this mentality and, and we, we don't understand the end of the story for Joseph. Now, let's transition into the victory verse. Because this, my friends, changes everything. As now we move into the purpose of this sermon series, what is the verse in this incredible 13 chapters that changed it all? Let's go there. Look at Genesis 49 and verse 33 as we move into this incredible truth. It says in Genesis 49 and verse 33 that when Jacob finished, Joseph's dad now had finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Verse 1, Joseph fell on his father's face and he wept over him and he kissed him. But notice, if you will, his brother's reaction to this in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, Oh, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. And them boys are still trapped, aren't they? They're still trapped. They're still living in the past. They, they've not yet been set free or liberated from this, this, this thought of what they had done. And they're afraid now that because Jacob's dead, their dad's dead, that now Joseph is going to get vengeance and maybe take their own lives. So they sent a message to Joseph. And they said this, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. I wonder what Joseph's reaction is going to be. It's found in the next two words. Joseph wept. Doesn't sound like he's bitter to me. He just weeps. He just begins to cry. And then he says in verse number 20, the victory verse that changes everything. As for you, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. 
And he meant it to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So boys, God meant it for good. There's a little place in your notes to write that out. And I want to challenge you to do it now or later, but as we commit that verse to memory, we begin to see that Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20 is the Romans 8.28 of the Old Testament. Romans 8.28 says clearly on the screen. Slow freight here. It's coming, I promise. I think. <laughs> Look at it. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Do you see that? All things work together for what? For good. Now back to Genesis 50.20. Look at it. As for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for what? For good. You see, the principle has been alive for a long time. It's not just Romans 8, 28. It is something that we've had to understand for centuries now. God means it for good. If God allowed it to happen, he promised to use it for my good, for your good. This changes the whole scenario. This changes how we look at everything. So let's begin by breaking this victory verse down, shall we? I'm not under the power of another person. I'm under the power of God who has everything under his power. Amen? Isn't that true? I'm not under the power of what man thinks. I'm under the power of God. And God changes everything. Only the Lord can move us beyond pain and abuse. He can and he will. So let's break the verse down. Number one, you meant it for evil. Now, this is a very important part of that verse. Notice Joseph did not dismiss what they had done. He didn't. He looked these boys straight in the eye and said, you dudes were bad. You messed me over. I mean, you meant it for evil. You know, I'm glad God put that there. You're not good guys. You know what I'm trying to tell you here this morning? You don't have to act like it didn't happen. It did happen. And it was rough. And it hurt. But you don't have to smooth it over. But can I tell you something? You don't want to be trapped by it. And I see so many people in home hurts and situations that are close to home trapped in the pain of the past. It's not about sweeping it under the rug, but it is about not getting trapped in what happened to you. You see, Joseph wasn't saying it's no big deal. It was a big deal. It was a big deal. It was rough. In fact, you meant it for evil. Number two, but... God. In fact, I'm going to preach a sermon series pretty soon called Great Butts in the Bible. Man, there is no better butt than this butt right here, I guarantee you. But God. You know what you find this? All throughout the Bible. I could preach for a whole year. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't look on his appearance, on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. But the Lord looks on the heart. I love Psalm 73 and verse 26. But my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. 
I love Ephesians chapter 2. Man, this one, this one really has, has spoke a little bit uh, in, our, in our worship time together. Among whom all, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. We carried out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Being rich in, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. But God, rich in mercy. What about 1 Corinthians chapter number 3 and verse 6? I planted, Apollos watered, but God. But you know what? I don't think there's any but God that makes me more happy than this one. Notice when this victory verse showed up in the text. Notice, it showed up at the very end of Genesis. Now, the, the fear that I have this morning that I, I want to make sure I dismiss is that anybody here would say, well... Look at there. Joseph lived for 25 years before he got it. It took 25 years for Joseph finally to realize that God meant it for good. So preacher, leave me alone. I, I'm not even at 25 years yet. I'm, I'm just, I'm just still angry. I'm still, I'm still a victim. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna make sure that, hang on. Let's see if that's true or not. Let's go back, if you will, please, to Genesis 45 and verse 1. It says in Genesis 45, verse 1, that Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried. He said, make everyone go out from me. No one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Hey guys, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Verse 7. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth, and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here. But God, it's okay, guys. It's all good. You didn't send me here. God did. I'm okay. Let's go even farther back, shall we? Let's go from before he met his brothers again in Genesis chapter 41. Look at verse 50. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, she bore them to him. And Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. And here's why he named him Manasseh. For he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. You see, Joseph had experienced the victory way before Genesis chapter 50. He realized that some things had happened to him. Listen, but God had something bigger going on. God was behind it all. God was at work. What an awesome, liberating realization to understand that God is the one who is control of your life. You are under his power and not the power of anyone else. This is liberating. This is freedom at its finest. But God meant it for good. That's the third phrase. You meant it for evil, but God, three, meant it for good. That changes everything. 
When you jump into that and swim around for a while, when, when you realize that, okay, this happened to me, but wait a minute. God meant it for good. I was beat up by my brothers, thrown into a pit, left for dead. They sold me into slavery. But God meant it for good. I was thrown in prison, lied about, and spent years in a prison. But God meant it for my good. Wow. Let me give you three ways to embrace that. Number one, you got to just embrace it. That's the first thing. I mean, just, just embrace it. Just, just, just say it over and over again because it changes everything. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Whatever it is you've been through, God meant it for good. Just embrace it. And then secondly, confess it out loud. Say it. Say it out loud. I mean, listen, just just say it over and over again. Confess it to God. Say it out loud. That's why we're memorizing Scripture. Why? Because if you commit this verse to memory, the next time the enemy comes to you and says, Hey, you're you're worthless, or or this happened to you, and you'll never get the victory. Ah, no, 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 no. Listen, as for me, you may have meant it for evil, Satan, but let me tell you something. God meant it for good. Speak the word of God against the enemy to get the victory. That's why we're to memorize God's word. Hide it in our hearts that we might not sin against God. Our problem is when the enemy comes, we don't know what to say. We're speechless. We just listen to him berate us and cut us down. We've got to know God's word. We've got to be able to speak into the darkness with the word of God. And sometimes it only takes a phrase or a verse. Maybe that's why God teaches us to commit God's word to memory. We memorize everything else. Some of us can sing whole songs by memory. We listen to songs on the radio 20, 30, 40 times. One of the reasons why you know certain worship songs is because Caleb plays them so many times and you can sing them by heart. You don't even need the words on the screen. Oh, that it could be that way for verses in the Bible. Oh, that it could be that way that we know God's word as well as we do a worship song. Confess it. And number three, Stand on it. Stand on it. Ephesians 6.11 says this. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Amen? Because the devil's got a scheme against you. And so what you do is you just say, you know what? I am who he says I am. Yes, I am. I love that part of the song. It's kind of like, you know, you say it and then you go, yeah. You know, I love that part. Every time we sing that song, my, my fist goes, mm. it does. I noticed when Sonia was singing it, she did the same thing. She's like, God, it just, something about that song just makes you want to go, yes, I am. Stand on it. We sing that old hymn, standing on the promises of Christ, my King. Through eternal ages, let his praises ring. Glory in the highest, I will shout and sing. Stand on the promises of God. What'd you say, Satan? (laughs) Shut up. You meant it for evil. 
God meant it for good. Adios. That's it. Stand on it. You see, church, we're living too often in bitterness, and we're stuck in the past, and we're miserable, and we don't need to be. Because God's given us a victory verse. He's given it to us in Genesis 50, 20, and he's given it to us in Romans 8, 28. I want the worship team to come up.